2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus Christ was born in relative obscurity in, in a small, dinky town. He never had children, was never married, never ran for office, was never a CEO, never traveled more than a few hundred miles from his hometown. However, he is the most well-known person of history, hands down. And in fact, no one is more loved or hated than Jesus Christ. He has been portrayed all over television. In fact, he's made cameos on The Simpsons. Right? He's made cameos on The Simpsons. Uh, a guy by the name of Ricky Bobby actually talks and prays to him often in the movie he's in. There's been over a hundred different movies in our generation made featuring Jesus Christ. Uh, comedians use his name in their act. There are clothing lines that depict his name, his image, his cross. He was actually even on the cover of Popular Mechanics where they said, we are searching for how to use technology to best recreate the actual face of Jesus. John Lennon from the Beatles actually said, hey, we're bigger than Jesus now. And then a little while later, he died. I'm assuming met Jesus and then thought, mm, not so much. <laughs> but somewhere along the way, the narrative about Jesus is that all religions really teach the same thing. That's not true. Jehovah's Witnesses would say Jesus is a created being. Mormons would say he's not an eternal God. He's the half-brother of Lucifer, and he's a great example for our life. Unitarians would say that Jesus is the perfect Mr. Rogers. He's a really great guy and a great teacher and a great example, but he is not a great God. Scientologists would say he's a universal force that began a few million years ago. And that's not even to mention what Muslims or Buddhists or Sikh or Hindus or others would claim about Jesus Christ. And so there seems to be an infinite number of opinions about Jesus Christ. The question would be, who is Jesus amidst all of these different perspectives? That's why this year we started in January a series called, What is the Gospel? The word gospel tells us what we believe about the person and work of Jesus. What is the gospel in the word gospel? Check it out. <laughs> Stand by just a minute. Siri, I don't need your help. I didn't plan that. She's just always listening. But if you could tell people about the gospel, Siri, that'd be awesome. Where were we? All right. The gospel. And this year, we want our church to be anchored 
in the gospel. We want you to know it and to be teaching it to your children, to be sharing it with your friends and your family. This is the essence of our being and our existence, and you must know and understand the gospel. And so I provided you a definition last week that I came up with. There are several out there. If you cannot on your own write down what this means, then take a picture, write this down. But this is the essence of what we believe about Jesus Christ in this statement. It is the good news, that's what gospel means, about our Savior and Lord, and that is both what he did and who he is. He is Savior, he provided redemption, and Lord, he is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who was crucified to save us from our sins, buried for three days, but resurrected to make us his sons and daughters and secure our eternity in heaven. That is the gospel. It is the good news. It is what we believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Christianity and Christianity alone makes this claim. And we base our understanding from God's word and specifically what Jesus Christ said about himself And so we've been studying the very words of Jesus in John chapter 3. So turn there now, if you will, to John chapter 3. It's a New Testament gospel. And once you have your Bible open to John chapter 3, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to read this together. And I encourage you every week, bring God's word, bring a copy of the scriptures, my words, will not transform your life, but God's words always do. And so the most probably well-known verse of the Bible, John 3, 16, says this, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But you didn't know there's a verse after that. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He was not on a mission of condemnation, no, but to save the world through him. That's why Jesus came. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because, you want to know where condemnation comes from? He has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. We bet our lives on it. And so, Lord, thank you for this good news. You reveal how you think and feel about us based on what you gave us, your son. And and we reveal how we think about you based on what we give back. And so help us, God, to worship you well today. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, grab a seat. And so if we look at John 3.16... There's really four parts in this verse that we are unpacking in this series. So we talk about, for God loved the world in this way, that's one. He gave his one and only son, that's two. He, whoever believes in him, that's a third part, will have eternal life. Those are the four parts that we're walking through in this series. And last week we looked specifically at, for God loved the world. And if you weren't here last week, if you're tuning in online this week, go back and watch because we said last week the the love of God is an eternal love and it is different than every other love on the planet. And God's love for me isn't based on my past or my present or my future because God loved me before I had one. 
And he so loved the world, that's the Greek word cosmos, and in the Bible that word typically depicts evil, rebellion, sin. And so God didn't love us because we're lovely. No, he loved us because he's God and his love makes us lovely. So that's last week we looked at that. This week we're going to kind of zero in on this part that says he gave his one and only Son. That's where we're going to spend our time. And his son, we know to be Jesus Christ. And to help frame a little bit about how we think about his son, Jesus Christ, I want you to look at what Paul said about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He said a lot in a few verses, but I'm going to hone in on this. He said two things about Jesus. One, he is the, what's the word? Image of the invisible God, the what? Firstborn over all of creation. So Paul, helping us understand the Son, Jesus Christ, gave us two claims. We'll look at the first one. That's the image of the invisible God. We know that God is spirit. We believe that God is triune. He is one yet three and three yet one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But God is immaterial, meaning we can't see him. The Bible actually says no one has seen God the Father. He dwells in unapproachable light, inexhaustible glory. However, when Jesus came to earth as the Son, God becoming man, what Jesus did was make the invisible God visible. God became visible to us through Jesus Christ, the Son, God in the flesh. In fact, John 14, 9, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So we have this expression, you know it, like Father, like. That's right. So when you look at Jesus, you're looking at the fullness of God, like a mirror, a mirror that accurately reflects what's in front of it. So this morning, I got up, got dressed, brushed my hair, looked in the mirror. Sadly, not overly impressed. I have got a giant Shrek-sized head. My physique from high school has already gone home to be with the Lord. This is what I've got. <laughs> But the mirror accurately reflected what was in front of it. And so Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, meaning he accurately reflects the Father. So his love, his mission, his mercy, his forgiveness is the exact representation of God the Father because Jesus is God. And he is our connection point. Between here and God, the Father. That's, that's what image means. And then he also says he is the firstborn over all of creation. When we think about firstborn, we tend to think about siblings, you know, older brothers, older sisters, younger brothers, younger sisters. Show of hands, how many of y'all are a firstborn in your home? Firstborns, how many here? Good. How many of y'all are middle child, middle children? That's me. Yeah, woo, we're the best, amen? Doesn't matter what the rest of y'all say, I have the microphone, so that's where it's going to hang out. So some would suggest that this verse would mean that Jesus was the first thing to ever be created. Well, that's not true. That's why we call that a heresy, because it's not true. Jesus wasn't created. In fact, if you keep reading in Colossians chapter 1, Paul goes on to say that Jesus was, in fact, the active agent in creation. He is creator. He's not created. Jesus wasn't created. It's not like God the Father and God the Holy Spirit we're up in heaven going, hey, you know what would make this less confusing? If there were three of us. <laughs> and boom, they made Jesus. That's not what happened. Jesus wasn't created. 
No, no, no. The, the verse says he is the firstborn over creation. This is CSB version, and I, I love that. So what Paul is saying here about the son that God gave, I, I want you to think power, status, significance, creator, think Jesus first. So God gave his son, the image of the invisible God, the creator, the most significant one. And so when you think about that, it seems irrational to a rational mind that God the Father would send God the Son, the creator of the world, into the world to die for the sins of the world. The creator stepped into creation to save the creation from their rebellion against the creator. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. But it's powerful. And so when you look back at John 3.16, it says he gave his one and only son. So we know that he gave God in the flesh to redeem humanity. And this word gave, it gives us the idea of why he came and it's redemption. This was the mission of the son. This is why God gave his son was for redemption. It's to be set free by the payment of a price. That's what redemption means. That's why God gave his son was for redemption of humanity. And if you look over at 1 Corinthians, it says this, you are not your own, for you were what? Bought at a price. What price? The Son, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, was given for your redemption. And 1 Timothy 5 and 6 says it this way. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom, a payment for all, a testimony at the proper time. God gave his only son for redemption, which is for us to be set be free by the payment of a price, the death of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And people often walk into church with a little bit of fear and trepidation, and they think, man, you don't really know me, what's going on in my life and my baggage and my past. And so wait, you know, man, if I hang out here too long, then man, the walls are just going to fall down. Well, number one, listen, this is just sheetrock and bricks. The to church is not a place. It is, it is a people. And the reality is all of us, regardless of your background, all of us, we are more sinful than we think we are. But God is more glorious than we can imagine. Because God's amount of grace exceeds our amount of sinfulness. And that's good news because you cannot out sin the cross. That's the reason why God gave his son. And you may think that your sin is so significant that God is just waiting to light you up. Like I'll pick on my friend Ryan Hill over here. And so Ryan, you come in like, hey, you don't know my story. I'm, I got this thing. And all of a sudden we watch over here and during the middle of the service, just lightning, just bang right there. You would think that's the wrath of God right there on that man. I don't know what he did, but I want to avoid that because that was crazy. God doesn't work like that. God is not sitting around with a lightning bolt waiting to light you up. Now, I, 
I think it's a good thing that we feel the weight of our sin. Listen, because if, if you don't feel the weight of your sin, then you don't cherish or celebrate the forgiveness that God offers you when he gave his son, Jesus Christ. And if you don't cherish and celebrate the forgiveness that God gave you through his son, Jesus Christ, then you don't worship fully. And if you don't worship fully, then you miss the very reason you were created, and that's to be a worshiper. And so he gave his one and only son so that we could have redemption. And inside this word redemption, what Jesus did for you when God gave him to this world as a sacrifice. There's two really powerful things that happen. There's these two doctrines I want to teach you about. Y'all okay if I teach for just a minute? Doesn't really matter. Okay. Number one, the doctrine of propitiation. Look at someone close to you and say propitiation. This is powerful. It's not just a fun sounding word. This is a powerful word. It means like to make up for something that's been done wrong. And what we learn in the doctrine of propitiation, when God gave his son, listen, look right here, on the cross of Jesus Christ, he absorbed every ounce of God's wrath that he had towards you. Every last drop of God's wrath that he would have for you was absorbed on the cross of Jesus Christ for you. Completely forgiven, completely reconciled back to God. And the reason why that's so powerful, because every step that I take, every moment of my life, every adventure, every journey, every high, every low, every moment of suffering, every moment of difficulty, every journey that I'm on, I am convinced that no matter what happens in my life, it's never God's wrath against me, ever. No matter how dark the night, no matter how bitter the ending, no matter how long the tears, it's never God's wrath. I am son, you are daughter. The doctrine of propitiation means every ounce of wrath that the creator God had for you was absorbed on the cross of Jesus Christ. But not only do we have the doctrine of propitiation, we have the doctrine of expiation. When God gave his son, not only was his wrath absorbed, but this, this word is a big word that means to cleanse. And it's important because sometimes our sin or our past or our failure, it causes us to feel unclean. And the Bible uses that language a lot, that sin defiles. But this teaches that Jesus cleanses. So this is a picture that any and every part of my sin is gone, removed, never to return. Jesus accomplishes that for me. And listen, it is devastating at times as a pastor to meet people who have been saved by Jesus, forgiven by Jesus, reconciled back to God, but still kind of view themselves as stained or or maybe unclean, and they can't fully celebrate the gospel. Not only is wrath removed, but, but this teaches us that Jesus, he gets down to the soul level. 
And he cleanses every nook and cranny and the hidden doors that you think are locked. He gets in there. And even though our past can kind of pop itself up like an unwanted guest, the reality is the sin that you can't forget, God doesn't remember. It's expiation. It's gone. Not not because it wasn't wicked. Because the blood of Jesus is that powerful that we are his And we belong to him. And he says, you are clean. And listen, I love this. God was working to save you long before you were working to rebel against him. (laughs) I'll say that again. God was working to save you long before you were working to rebel against him. And the good news is what God gave us in his son Jesus reveals who we are to him. If you want to know how God thinks about you, what God gave us in Jesus reveals who we are to him. And I'll also say this, what, what we then give Jesus reveals who he is to us. So what God gave us reveals how he thinks about us. What we give back reveal how we think of him. And there's a I think a great story that paints a picture of this in the Gospels. There's a, there's a lady named Mary who, who came to Jesus' feet and she broke this alabaster flask and she began to wash his feet and, and anoint him with it. Y'all familiar with that story? Yeah, I love that story. It happened at a party near the time where Jesus was getting ready to die and What Mary did in that moment brought the entire party to a screeching halt because she brought this alabaster flask in and she she broke it and anointed his feet and used her hair. And the disciples were indignant because that, that alabaster flask cost somewhere around 300 days wages. That's, that's a lot of money for anyone, 300 days wages. That's almost an entire year's salary. So I, I looked up the average Nolensville yearly salary and then did a little bit of math to put it on about what 300 days would be. If that flask were today, that alabaster would cost around $120,000 in this economy. So I don't want you to think, how long would it take me to make that much money? I want you to think, how long would it take for me to save that and have it in a way that I could just pour it out in some way? That's a lot of Roth IRAs. And this was most likely a family heirloom, like passed down to help protect her against famine or war, to be utilized to, you know, stave off death or you know, I can't afford food. You, you have this. This is security. And, and when Mary saw Jesus in that moment, what she said was, he's, he's better. He's, he's better. Well, one theologian said it this way. He said, everyone in the room could only see the perfume. But Mary could only see the value of Jesus. 
And she said, all that I am and all that I have is yours, your God, your Savior. In fact, just recently, you resurrected my brother Lazarus from the dead, so you're not a mere man, you're God in the flesh. She had a proper view of Jesus. Have you, have you ever seen Jesus that way before? In a moment, worthy of everything. See, what God gave us revealed how he thinks about us. What we give back reveals how we think about him. And some of us, we kind of have a best friend view of Jesus. Like, man, he died for me. He took care of me. He helped me. And it, it may produce, it's like worship. But it's not worship until you give your full self. It's not just gratitude. It's a here I am. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. My life, my soul, my everything. What is, like, what's your alabaster flask that you're not willing to break and give back? And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait, I know what your call to action is. You're going to say, leave here this week and give everything to Jesus. Now, that's not at all what I'm going to ask you to do. Because here's why. I know most of you, you've tried that, and then you take most of it back. Jesus, I'm going to give everything. I'll take this back. What I want you to consider is how Mary got to the place where she was actually able to do that. If you go to Luke 10 and you read, you'll find the story of her and Martha. Y'all read that story? And Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha's running around fussing that Mary's not up helping. Y'all know that story? Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus said she's doing the best thing. And you read through the entirety of the Gospels, and most often you're going to find Mary doing that same thing, sitting right at the feet of Jesus. And the reason why that's so profound is because the more she sat there, the more she was transformed by him. And the more she sat there, the more full picture of him she got. And the longer she sat, the better she knew him. And the more she sat, the better picture she had of him. Until finally, one day, it was just natural to break the flask, humble herself, and say, everything I have is yours. That's where I want to be. I want to be the type of person that says, whatever I have, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? I want the way that I live my life and what I give back to reveal to be what I believe to be true about Jesus. Because what God gave us reveals how he thinks of us. I pray that what we give back would reveal to be true about what we believe about him. Amen? And it starts with just sitting at his feet. Could you, could you do that this week? Could you, could you be purposeful to say, I will this week find myself at the feet of Jesus 
for transformation, for teaching, for humbling, to be conformed into his image. That's what I'm asking you to do this week. Spend time at his feet. And just like Mary, the more time we spend, I bet it will become natural in your life to say, sure, yes. What do you want? I'm all in. And so, Lord, I just pray, little by little, day by day, you would transform us into the image of your Son. Thank you that you gave your only Son. And you revealed how you think of us based on what you gave. And God, would what we give back reveal to be a true testimony to who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.